from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't like who I could. not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Tuesday, April 14th. Really sad news coming down yesterday, happening on Sunday, but former Vikings, former Seahawks quarterback Tavares Jackson passing away Sunday night in a car crash, just 36 years old. And yesterday we saw an outpouring of love and support from former teammates and coaches, including Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll. Also, speaking of Pete Carroll, he sat down with Steve Kerr, two of the greatest coaching minds currently coaching, talking about um, mentorship, talking about their philosophies as head coaches, and they're doing it all for COVID relief as well. So we'll play you some of the sound from their conversation. Also, a huge contract coming for Christian McCaffrey, the Panthers running back agreed to a four-year extension that makes him the highest paid running back in NFL history. We keep seeing these running back deals, big money contracts go south, but will teams ever learn? We'll discuss all ahead in this hour. Right now, let's get to your headlines. Really sad, tragic news Sunday night. Former Vikings, former Seahawks quarterback Tavares Jackson passed away in a car crash at the age of 36. A Tennessee State spokesperson confirmed Jackson's death. He was the Tigers quarterbacks coach in 2019 after spending a year as a quality control and quarterbacks coach at his alma mater, Alabama State. According to the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency, Jackson was involved in a single vehicle crash uh, just before 9 p.m. on Sunday. He was driving a Chevy Camaro, and uh, according to the reports, the Camaro he was driving left the roadway, struck a tree, and then overturned. He was transported to a local hospital and sadly later pronounced dead. The crash occurred about seven miles south of Jackson's hometown of Montgomery, Alabama. Jackson survived by his wife and his three children. Uh, several of Jackson's former NFL teammates and coaches were on Twitter on social media yesterday to express their love and support. Uh, Russell Wilson, one of them. He wrote, T-Jack, you will be missed. Praying for your family. Love you, man. Pete Carroll also online saying Tavares Jackson was a beloved teammate, competitor, and Seahawk. He will be deeply missed. So heartbroken by the news of his passing and sending our condolences to his family and friends. We love you forever, uh, Tavares. Jackson's 10-year NFL career, it began in Minnesota. He was drafted 64th overall back in 2016 and started 21 regular season and playoff games for the Vikings, but was a backup for most of his five seasons there. Uh, then ended up in signing with Seattle as a free agent in 2011 and became a popular guy in the Seahawks locker room. Uh, during his lone season as a starter, he played through the partially torn pectoral muscle, which is absolutely uh, excruciatingly painful from what I've heard on his throwing side as well, compiled a 7-7 record as a starter and then traded to Buffalo ahead of 2012, um, returned to Seattle in 2013 and was able to be part of that Super Bowl team as Russell Wilson's backup and that victory over the Denver Broncos. So just our uh, our hearts and all of our well wishes with his family at this time. 
Carolina Panthers running back Christian McCaffrey reaching a four-year extension, averaging $16 million per year, according to reports that will make him the highest-paid running back in NFL history. Dallas Cowboys uh, running back Ezekiel Elliott had been the highest-paid at $15 million on average, but uh, Le'Veon Bell also third at $14.1 million a year, but... Christian McCaffrey will surpass them all. The deal includes a fifth-year option, according to ESPN's Jeremy Fowler, including the two years left on McCaffrey's rookie deal and the option. The deal expected to pay out around $75 million over six years. Now, there's some differing opinions on uh, what to make of an extension like this. We heard them yesterday. Dan Orlovsky, what did he make of McCaffrey's extension? I hope it bucks the trend because the trend is don't pay running backs, right? And we've got some evidence of a guy like Todd Gurley who was the best in the league when he got paid. And that has obviously not paid off for the Los Angeles Rams. And then a guy like Le'Veon Bell was the case study last year for the Jets. One of the best backs in the NFL dual threat-wise and really didn't impact that football team offense as much as a lot of us thought they would. So I hope Christian McCaffrey kind of bucks the trend. I do believe that he will continue to be as productive as he's been. Almost 2,000 yards all purpose two years ago, 2,000 last year. He's a perfect fit scheme-wise in their new offensive coordinator, Joe Brady's system. So I expect that to continue to be production-wise where it's been. Um, But I hope he kind of puts a, a squash to the don't pay the running back mantra. Chris Mortensen, uh, ESPN NFL insider, with a different opinion, saying that he believes the extension will go well for McCaffrey. Well, I mean, people say he plays a position that's going to take a hit virtually on every play. Look what happened with Todd Gurley. Now, Gurley had an injury history. He came into the league with a former ACL uh, injury. McCaffrey doesn't have that history. He's only 23 years old right now. He's going to be 24 uh, in June. So there's a lot that I think he, he has certainly broken barriers that some people didn't anticipate. Uh, and North Turner, their offensive coordinator, who's known for pounding the football, found a way to utilize him. Well, let's just put it this way. Uh, probably the most versatile back we've seen since Marshall Falk in the NFL. Maybe if you think of it as paying a wide receiver and a running back. McCaffrey last season became the third player in NFL history to have a thousand yards on the ground and receiving in the same season. He joined former San Francisco back Roger Craig and Hall of Famer Marshall Falk on that list. David Newton, who is the uh, Panthers Nation reporter for ESPN, talked about McCaffrey essentially becoming the face of that franchise. Oh, I think it's been heading in that direction for a while. Last year, I kind of felt like he'd taken over that mantle. But, you know, Luke Keekley was still there. But once Luke Keekley retired uh, kind of unexpectedly back in January, then and you kind of knew Cam was going to be a a face that was going to be gone from this team. Uh, you, you knew Christian was going to be it. The, the Panthers really felt like, and, and Matt Rule, our new coach, felt like he kind of personified uh, what he wanted in a, in a player, what he wanted in somebody to represent the organization. Chris McCaffrey had a higher percentage of team touches, scrimmage yards, and scrimmage touchdowns of any player in the NFL in 2019, and he has yet to turn 24. That won't happen until June 7, but the extension will keep McCaffrey, at least ties him uh, to Carolina through the 2025 season. 
uh, this morning on Golick and Wingo, also with some other opinions on that. And Mike Golick Jr. saying uh, he wouldn't pay a running back that type of money. The bottom line is Christian McCaffrey got paid a ton of money, and I'm not sure he like. I'm not sure it's the smartest thing to do for your team. I'm not sure your team is made that much better or worse by the well, like, overall in this. Like they were a five and eleven football team next year, last year. Right. If they're going to be good next year, it's because Teddy Bridgewater outperforms what you gave him, not because Christian McCaffrey does the exact thing that he does. The problem is those two things are hard to stretch apart. Like outside of that, they don't have a ton of other dynamic weapons. They don't have anyone to uh, David Newton's point that's as good at what they do right. as Christian McCaffrey is. And so at some point, the human element of this creeps in because from a team building standpoint, I do not agree with this. I would not give a running back that much money under any circumstances anymore. You'll, None. Michael Lick Sr. Uh, also wondering when teams will stop paying running backs top dollar. The running back of today, Christian McCaffrey, is the best of it, which is basically, we talked about this, Mike, a running back who is a slot receiver. You know, that, that, that's what he is. And we know slot receivers don't make running back money. Uh, and, and he's more a slot receiver, even though he gains over 1,000 yards in the running back position. So you wonder... Where's the cap to this? Because Kamara's going to say, okay, that's where my deal should start. Saquon Barkley's then going to say, okay, that's where my deal should start. When does a team, when will they have the power and when will they, the guts is the wrong word, and say, no. I mean, no, we're, we're not paying that. Also some thoughts on the top position players in general. Well, I guess my point is, will, will it be, I guess let me put it this way. Will it be devalued to the point where the guy considered the best isn't the high, starts to go the other way? Meaning, right now, if you're the best offensive tackle coming up, you're going to surpass the latest deal. If you're the best tight end, you'll surpass the highest tight end. If you're the best safety, and the safety position has really turned into a Swiss Army knife, you'll surpass that. Are we going to get to the point where the running back, who's considered the best, if the next one coming up is the best, will they surpass that? Or is that position by teams going to become devalued to the point where, say, we know you're really good, but you're not, it's not worth that money? Coming up on the Blitz, uh, let's take a look at the latest that we're seeing with the quarterbacks that might go off the board in the first round of the draft. Mel Kuyper with a great quote on, if something doesn't happen, we should all retire from sports. I'll play it for you next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to the Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside you Tuesday, April 14th. Just a little over, well, just two weeks away from the draft. Less than two weeks. I can do math. I haven't lost track of days or times or hours during uh, during this quarantine. No, not at all. Uh, I know when Fridays are. That's That's for sure. But the NFL draft just around the corner and a lot of discussion about What's going to happen, A, with a virtual draft, how things technologically will progress. You know that some people won't have that down, may lead to a unintended entertainment factor because of that. Dan Arlovsky, though, speaking yesterday on Get Up, talked about three things that he believed will happen in the first round of the draft. Dan put together a little list for us here, and we're going to go through them here. These are three things that Dan is looking for, three things he's hoping for or looking at closely as far as what may happen in the first draft. Dan, what is the first thing you're looking for? 
Yeah, Grinny, I want to see the Pittsburgh Steelers find a way to get back into the middle of the first round if Jordan Love falls and draft him. It's a perfect storm in reality because the Steelers don't have a lot of holes on their football team. They're getting their Hall of Fame quarterback in Ben Roethlisberger back. He's 38 and under contract for two more years, and Jordan Love can go there. He can sit. He can be on that Patrick Mahomes type of plan. I want to see the Steelers make that happen. I love that one. What's the second one? All right, so the Dolphins, who have multiple first-round picks, and the Las Vegas Raiders, who have multiple first-round picks, and the New England Patriots, who somehow can do things that we can't explain. I want all three of those teams to call the Houston Texans and see if they can pry Deshaun Watson away from them. Bill O'Brien's doing some very interesting things as the general manager of the Houston Texans, and I know it sounds crazy, but maybe one of those teams can offer a number of picks either this year or next year and get Deshaun Watson out of Houston. Like nothing could possibly top that one. What's number three? Well, try me, Greeny. Pick number 17, the Dallas Cowboys. Justin Herbert falls to number 17, and the Dallas Cowboys decide, you know what? We're going to draft Justin Herbert. We love his skill set. We'll sign Cam Newton to a one- or two-year deal, and then we can have the option of allowing Dak to walk or signing his franchise tag and then trading him for two first-round picks. They can use all that leftover money that they're going to save with drafting a young quarterback and signing a guy named Jadavian Clowney. All of a sudden, that defense is a lot better. We know that the best chance to win soon is in the NFL right now is with a young quarterback and a good team around him. And uh, I think the, I would love to see it happen. Girl. I stand corrected. I stand corrected. You could top the previous one. People in Seattle would not love to see that happen. Don't do it, Cloudy. Also, though, that discussion of quarterbacks and where they could go has been pretty much the focus. Joe Burrow being one of them. And I love this from Mel Kuyper Jr. yesterday. He's saying at this point, if Joe Burrow is a bust, we should probably all uh, hang it up. You know, you look for safe picks. You think about guys who made it easy for the team picking number one, the Bengals. Joe Burrow did that. There was no game where you left that contest saying, boy, I wonder if there should be somebody else ahead of Joe. Never had that. He was over 71% completion percentage in every game except one. That was a national championship game against Clemson where he was at 63-3 with five touchdowns and zero picks, coming through after adjusting after that struggle early to have a heck of a game. You think about the six games, he was at 79% or better. The improvement from last year to this year was staggering. Obviously, Joe Brady had something to do with that, but the improvement of those receivers led by Justin Jefferson and Chase had a lot to do with his success. But I think if if he's a bust, then we should all retire. One quarterback with varying different opinions that scouts seem to have on him would be Utah State's uh, Jordan Love. He has been uh, proclaimed as either the best arm in this draft by some and then undraftable by others. But Daniel Jeremiah yesterday saying, oh, he has the best arm in the draft. His ability to throw the football is unmatched in this draft. It is special what he can do as a thrower. The challenge is going to be developing him as a quarterback more so than just a thrower. I think he needs some time, and it's going to matter where he goes. If he gets with the right people, uh, this could be a big home run for whoever lands him. Uh, Also elsewhere in draft possibilities, Bill Belichick had a press conference yesterday and talked about how he might have his eye on some of the 2020 quarterbacks. You know, each guy has his own set of skills. Uh, He has his own circumstances, and uh, some players have you know, played well over a sustained period of time. Some players have had an exceptional year in the past year or two, uh, maybe 2019, some cases 2018. For whatever the reasons were, the, the two years didn't quite match up. Interesting, 
group and uh, probably one that has decent depth to it. So that also sparked off a big conversation on if the Patriots could be looking perhaps to move up or to make a run at a quarterback this year. Uh, Ben Volan, who works for the Boston Globe, talking about if the Patriots could make a run at a quarterback, particularly to a Tongo Vailoa. Working against the Patriots is the fact that they don't have great uh, draft capital. They have the 23rd pick. They don't have a second rounder because they traded it for Mohamed Sanu, and then they have 87 in the third round. So if the Dolphins want to, the Dolphins can pretty much trump every offer. Same with the Chargers, the Jaguars, you know, other teams. But there's more than one way to make a trade, and it doesn't have to just be draft picks. Uh, you know, the Patriots, I think, have a couple veterans who they might end up trading before the season starts. Ben Bullen doesn't believe that the Patriots would hand over the QB reins to just anyone. I think the Patriots are basically re- rebuilding for the next couple of years where they want to see what they've got. They, you know, Jared Stidham is very cheap, and if he ends up being a great quarterback, then the Patriots are well ahead of the game. They've got a good quarterback um, for pennies on the dollar. So I think, uh, you know, instead of going and, and signing a Cam Newton or an Andy Dalton who don't, you know, they're not going to be the future of the franchise i think the patriots want to see what they've got inside the building and so stidham is absolutely going to get a chance to win the job but they're not going to hand it to him and i I definitely expect the patriots to come away from draft weekend with another quarterback ben bolin saying that they won't really put this in the hands of a rental that they are building for the future bill belichick on that conference as well also had some thoughts on tom brady said it would be impossible to sum up what he did with that team in two decades. Yeah, at the start of free agency, I made a statement about Tom. Um, it would be, of course, impossible to sum up everything Tom did in 20 years into, into a comment um, then or now. Um, but I meant everything I said about him, and, and um, I'm sure we'll be talking about him for years and, and decades to come. Bill also asked if they had a desire to bring, if he in particular had a desire to bring Tom back this season. I think that's, uh, you know, water under the bridge Mike and like I said we're really focused on this season and trying to look at our opportunities and make decisions and plan and prepare to be as competitive as we can be this year so that's really where our focus is on. It didn't didn't surprise you at all him leaving? Yeah I think we've covered all that. There's the Bill Belichick we know. Up next on the Blitz speaking of head coaches Pete Carroll sitting down with Steve Kerr in a really interesting conversation that happened on the Ringer NFL podcast, and they're doing it to raise money for COVID-19 relief. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to the Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Tuesday, April 14th. Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr, two of the best coaches currently in their respective sports. Steve Kerr with the Warriors, Pete Carroll with the Seahawks. uh, Joining up for a pretty cool podcast series on The Ringer. It's part of the NFL Ringer podcast, but it's really just a limited podcast. Mini series uh, about coaching, about mentorship, and they're doing it to raise money for coronavirus relief efforts. So pretty cool that these guys uh, would take some time. They want to give you an insight into 
their respective teams and how they coach, but also it's their goal to bring on other coaches. Pete saying he'd love to have Major League Baseball represented at some point by having a, a big-time coach come discuss their coaching theories and philosophies as well. But a lot came out of this uh, first episode that posted last night and a few stories that I wanted to share with you. Pete explaining the story of Bill Walsh and working with him, learning who he was as a coach. I was at San Francisco and uh, uh, Coach George Seifert was a head coach and he, he had coached for years with Bill Walsh at the Niners. And I, Bill was just an iconic figure in, in all of sports, but in particular in that building there, you know, they, they held him in such extraordinary high regard, you know, because he was the king, you know, and the whole time he was there and he was magnificent. The history of the success was, is do- well documented, but he was more than that. He was a personality and all that. Anyway, so when he came back to be a, a, an advisor, um, they hired him back after, I think after the Stanford days. He came in the building and nobody wanted to talk to him. They were scared to death of him. You know, everybody was afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. And all that. Well, I didn't know anything. I, I, I mean, I, I was, grew up a Niner fan and all that and, and loved all their, their success. But I didn't, I hadn't been overwhelmed by him, you know, in the, in the, coaching process. So anyway, he, he was kind of by himself, you know, and he was, he had a little office in the back corner. And, and so I just, started going in and hanging out and he, and he let me come in and talk and he was, nobody else was coming by. So he, you know, we, we developed a really great relationship. And what was so exciting about it is I was, I mean, I had loved the 49ers and the system and and the, the history of how they had put it together and all of that. But I had the chance to ask him about all of, you know, how did you do it? Why did you do this? What was your thinking here? And why would you, why this player, why this coach, um, and, and even talking through the cycles of their time together with Joe and Jerry and all those guys and Steve Young coming on all of I me, mean, we got to talk through all that stuff, which was, um, I mean, it was fun anyway, you know, whether it had something to do with coaching or not, or it was going to help me. I, you know, I was just trying to understand it better and learn. So it just became an extraordinary resource, you know, cause I knew why he had done what he had done, you know, he had chosen to do the things he had done. And, but what, what came through wasn't really any of the specific particulars, you know, it was that he knew what he was doing and he knew how he wanted his program to go. And he was really, really adamant and, and emphatic about the things that were important to him and execution and discipline and practice, uh, the, the approach to the players, how you dealt with the coaches and the players. It just, it reminded me so much of when I look back now, it reminded me so much of what I had learned and what I had loved so much about Coach John Wooden, you know, that he was so unique and so extraordinarily his own guy in his own way, totally different than anything I could ever put up. Bill, totally different than anything I could ever put out there as a coach. But it was more about figuring out that you needed to know you. That's why I asked you the question, you know, how are you going to coach your team, man? What, what do you, now what? You know, okay, you've been around this a little bit. You, you're thinking about it and you're thinking of X's and O's and okay, I'm going to go to camp and all that. But that's not, that's not what came through during the, the, the great lessons, you know, with, with Coach Walsh. It was, it was about knowing who you are. And, and the more I looked back at the people who had impressed me over the years, you know, I had major influence from, uh, you know, from Bud Grant, you know, when I was at Minnesota for those five years and, and some Monty Kiffin, a guy I coached with for years, it was these unique people and, and they had their way and their style. That's, so that's what I was, I wanted to get you to start thinking about who are you as a coach? What are you all about? Man? Where, yeah. where are you coming from? What's important to you? What are your uncompromising principles? You know, where, what are you going to stand by? What do you stand for? I mean, all of those things are going to come into play because they're going to, you're going to be in camp and some guy's not going to show up for a meeting, you know, and yeah. then he's going to be late for the bus. And, and then he's, then he's going to, 
you know, spout off at one of your players during the game. You get all these millions of things that are going to happen. How are you going to react to them? How you, it has nothing to do with X's and O's. It's right. who you are right. and how you get, you know, and, and then every time you, you deal with any situation, you're making a statement about who you are, what you are, and then they're going to watch it. And do you really believe in something or are you just yeah. dealing with things yeah. randomly? You know, so that's, that's the really cool stuff about figuring out how to coach, you know, and, and uh, you unbelievable job you did. Like I said, I can't even imagine how you pulled it off. It was Pete explaining um, his story and also talking to Steve, uh, how he spun that forward. They had time that they spent together at just the very beginning of Steve's career where Pete invited him out to training camp. Uh, it was before, I believe, they won the Super Bowl, spent a couple days out here, but Steve had also observed him in his time at USC. And one of the biggest things he talked about was the element of joy that Pete Carroll's teams always seem to play with. They have fun. And that that uh, Steve wove that into the fabric of his coaching philosophy. Also talked about how players, they have to feel your authenticity. They have to believe in what you are preaching to them. Well, I, I, I know everything you're talking about ends up with authenticity, right? So every coach you're talking about, whether it's Bud Grant or, or Bill Walsh or, or, you know, Seifert, they knew what they wanted, they knew what they were about, and that had to show itself to the players. And that's, I think, that's what most of my mentors, most of my my coaches who I leaned on, guys like Phil Jackson, Greg Popovich, Lute Olson in college. Sure, I could feel all that. But you were the first person to ever really uh, express how how that has to come through. And so, what I mean by that is. Um, you know, everyone talks about culture. How do you how do you build a culture? You know, you, we've all been in a in a gym or a you know a weight room where there's a big sign that says like only the strong survive, and you're like, what does that even mean, right? <laughs> and, and what I learned from you was everything that happens in practice, everything that the players feel when they walk into the gym or onto the field. Every day that they come to the facility, it has to be real. And the values that are important to you as a coach have to come alive. And that's how culture is defined. And, and when your players feel that and they feel that authenticity coming from you and it's really uh, it comes alive in practice and in the in the atmosphere. Now there's something real and the momentum starts to build. Pete also talked about, yes, you have to have consistency. Your message has to remain the same and that you have to be true to yourself. What was cool for me was you you explained all that. And then you said, go back to your hotel tonight and think about all that stuff. Think about what are the most important values to you, you know, not to Greg Popovich, not to Phil Jackson, yeah. you know, not to me, but to you personally. And I think that was the best advice that I got was uh Every every person is different, right? Every every human being is different and unique to his own set of circumstances, and and so what our values might be similar, but they're unique to us. And um, and learning how to to make that those come alive in a in a team setting is really what coaching is about. So this is what where it got cool for me was you said. Uh, you shared that story. The next day we came in and we kind of talked more in detail about values. And you said, I went through this process with Bill Walsh and kind of talking things out all year. 
And then I did a lot of writing. Remember you, t- you, you said you did a yeah. lot of writing and reading. And you told me when you got the SC job, you knew you were ready. You said, I, I said, I, yeah. you said, I knew we were going to roll. And so what do you, explain that? That story, actually, we'll have to save for tomorrow, but it is pretty incredible. And Pete saying that they knew they were ready, but uh, not necessarily USC fans believing that they were ready for that opportunity. And Pete saying, well, he didn't care. He knew that that was the right place for him at the right time. So we'll we'll get back to that story tomorrow, but it's pretty incredible. If you want, check out the, the full interview on The Ringer. It is the Ringer NFL podcast. And as this series comes out, we'll, we'll keep you updated and hopefully uh, more coaching wisdom to come from these two, all to raise money for COVID-19 relief. Up next on The Blitz, it's time for the hot list. Well, In Florida, the WWE was deemed an essential business. Why why, why did that happen? And what does this mean for potentially other sports? It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines studio. It's time for... The Hot List. Holy mackerel. The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 645. Heck yes. What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go. Many American citizens are under either shelter in place, stay at home, Orders uh, and yesterday, an interesting development in Florida. WWE was deemed an essential business in Florida. Orange County Mayor Jerry Deming said yesterday uh, that the company can resume live television shows from its Orlando training facility and Full Sail University in Winter Park um, because of being deemed an essential business. The decision outlined in an April 9th memo memo from uh, the governor's office could open the door for other sports to resume in the state. According to Demings, WWE initially was not designated as essential and therefore was not exempt from the state's shelter-in-place order, which took effect April 3rd and runs through at least April 30th. That decision was reversed after, quote, some conversation, uh, and Demings said, Monday in that news press conference that they had reversed that decision. Essential businesses that are supposed to remain open during Florida's stay-at-home order include those in the healthcare profession, uh, food being another big one, financial, energy, communications, and transportation sectors. But according to the memo sent by the governor's office on Thursday, recent additions to essential services in the state include, quote, employees at a professional sports and media production with a national audience, including any athletes, entertainers, production team, executive team, media team, and any others necessary to facilitate, including services supporting such production only if the location is closed to the general public. So, uh, again, wouldn't name any specific sports because they were asked if this would apply to UFC events. Uh, The office said the memo does not specify specific sports as long as the event location is closed to the general public. Now, you could be thinking that the UFC might be the next uh, on this list because they've suspended all events. Does not have a time frame currently for return, although UFC President Dana White has been pretty clear, (laughs) almost defiant, 
that he wants to resume as soon as possible. Tried to make that happen um, earlier uh, in California and eventually got overruled by ESPN. That's the other part of this, though. If you do have a contract with a TV broadcast team, uh, a television rights team, it would also include them coming out to film it. And while it is technically okay, is it something that they are okay with internally? We'll see. We'll keep you updated on that. But it also could lead to baseball possibilities in Florida because, as we know, the Grapefruit League played there. There was some discussion about the possibility of playing in a biosphere of sorts in Arizona. But now could that be a possibility in Florida? Mark Teixeira, ESPN MLB analyst, talking about that yesterday. You could pull off something like this uh, where you're playing games in Cactus League and, and um, Grapefruit League stadiums. That's better than the idea I heard last week about quarantining everyone down to Arizona. I, I never thought that had an idea. This, this Florida-Arizona split thing has some legs. Thinking that you could play games in, in both areas, that it would be difficult for everybody to be in the same place. Keeping in mind, both these places get pretty warm in the summer, and not all places are domed or uh, covered stadiums. Mark Teixeira also with thir- further thoughts on those plans. Honestly, as a player, um, you know, and, and a lot of people are saying this privately, probably not as publicly, because we all want to be extremely sensitive to this thing. But... Players aren't as scared as probably the general population. Number one, you'll, you know if you let me as a player back into a stadium, it's going to be a clean place. There's not going to be any – we obviously need to have some more testing. There's not going to be people with the virus all over, all over the, the stadium and all over the clubhouse. We're outside for, for a good part of the day. Baseball, yeah, you're touching the ball and you're touching you know, bats and stuff, but there's not a ton of physical contact in the game. So I believe players right now would, would feel good about going back to work. The problem is, is all of the support staff that it takes to put on a baseball game from the clubhouse attendants to the trainers, to all the coaches, everybody in a big stadium, all the different cameras, the technology that you need from a, from a um, you know, game broadcast standpoint. I think players would be more worried about the support staff because we don't want to see anybody of them get sick just won't want to see anyone get sick, period. Uh, Mark Teixeira, don't know exactly what to make of that take, but he did also believe that in 2020 there won't be any fans. Unfortunately, you know, from a baseball perspective, you know, attendance has been dwindling the last few years anyway. And this is what I really worry about is the fringe fan, you know, the, the, the Yankee fan that goes to, to Yankee Stadium, you know, with clients or, or you know, that one time a year with another family and, and kind of has a social outing at the ballpark, I think those are going away. I, I hate to say it. 2020 is going to have very few fans. Uh, you're going to have very few fans in the stand. That's just the way it's going to be. The NFL and NFLPA yesterday finalized plans for off-season workout rules that'll be modified due to the coronavirus pandemic. It's preventing teams from gathering at team facilities per usual, so... Uh, according to this league memo, ESPN publishing this story, under the plan, all off-season work aside from mandatory June minicamp is voluntary for players as it is in a normal year. The memo also 
says that no team is required to hold an off-season program in any league year according to the collective bargaining agreement, but that if teams decide they do want to proceed, hold their off-season workout programs this year, that, quote, classroom instruction and on-field activities that customarily take place at the club facility are being supplanted by online classroom instruction and virtual workouts for an indeterminate period. The rules for these kind of virtual off-season programs say that no team is required to participate in them, um, which is defined as running from April 20th to May 15th, but a team may conduct classroom work if they do decide to do it, even if it doesn't assign its players specific workouts. So trying to, again, work around this stipulation of, of social distancing and make the off-season programs that would be uh, typically coming up soon still happen in some way, shape, or form. Really sad news yesterday. Uh, Jacqueline Cruz Towns, the mother of Minnesota Timberwolves star Carl Anthony Towns, passed away due to complications from the coronavirus. She was just 58 years old. Carl Anthony had posted an emotional video on his Instagram page back on March 25th revealing that his mom was in a medically induced coma, had been placed on a ventilator due to the virus. In the uh, six-minute video he posted on Instagram at the time, he said both his mother and father had started to experience symptoms of COVID-19. His father, who also tested positive for the virus and was hospitalized, eventually began to feel better. But Jacqueline continued to struggle. This was uh, Carl Anthony Towns' message and statement on COVID about protecting yourself and staying safe in this time this disease needs to not be taken like please protect your families your your your, your loved ones your, your friends yourself practice social distancing please don't be in places with a lot of people just hide your chances of getting this disease and this disease is not it's deadly it's deadly and um we're gonna keep fighting on my side my me and my family are gonna keep fighting this we're gonna beat it we're gonna win Um, I hope my story helps. I hope uh, my story gives you the correct information. It's really sad. In an interview back in 2017 with ESPN, Towns said his mom worked for the medical department at Rutgers University for over 20 years and that he's often talked about how close that their relationship is, how close he was to his mom. So just really sad. An outpouring of support coming from players and coaches for him yesterday. Alabama coach Nick Saban, he believes LSU quarterback Joe Burrow will have a pretty successful NFL career. At ESPN Plus, airing an episode of Detail uh, yesterday, Nick Saban praised the projected top overall pick in next week's NFL draft. Also broke down Burrow's performance in LSU's victory over Clemson for the national championship in January. He complimented Burrow's accuracy and decision-making and said, I think Joe Burrow's got great vision, does a good job with pre-snap reads, and knowing where he's going to go with the ball and also his ability to extend plays, scramble, and throw. Mel Kuyper Jr. saying yesterday that if Burrow is a bust, well, we should maybe just all retire. You know, you look for safe picks, Suze. You think about guys who made it easy for the team picking number one, the Bengals. Joe Burrow did that. There was no game where you left that contest saying, boy, I wonder if there should be somebody else ahead of Joe. Never had that. He was over 71% completion percentage in every game except one. That was a national championship game against Clemson where he was at 63-3 with five touchdowns and zero picks. 
coming through after adjusting after that struggle early to have a heck of a game. You think about the six games, he was at 79% or better. The improvement from last year to this year was staggering. Obviously, Joe Brady had something to do with that, but the improvement of those receivers led by Justin Jefferson and Chase had a lot to do with his success. But I think if he if he's a bust, then we should all retire. <laughs> The Carolina Panthers and running back Christian McCaffrey agreed to a four-year extension that will make McCaffrey the highest-paid running back in NFL history, $16 million per year on average. Ezekiel Elliott had been the NFL's highest-paid running back, averaging 15 per year, and Jets running back Le'Veon Bell now ranks third at 14.1. The deal also includes a fifth-year option, according to ESPN's Jeremy Fowler, including the two years left on McCaffrey's rookie deal. He has yet to turn 24. That will happen in June. Uh, but that plus the option, the deal expected to pay out around $75 million over six years. Dan Orlovsky on what he makes of the extension. I hope it bucks the trend because the trend is don't pay running backs, right? And we've got some evidence of a guy like Todd Gurley who was the best in the league when he got paid. And that has obviously not paid off for the Los Angeles Rams. And then a guy like Le'Veon Bell was the case study last year for the Jets. One of the best backs in the NFL dual threat-wise and really didn't impact that football team and offense as much as a lot of us thought they would. I, so I hope Christian McCaffrey kind of bucks the trend. I do believe that he will continue to be as productive as he's been. Almost 2,000 yards all-purpose two years ago, 2,000 last year. He's a perfect fit scheme-wise in their new offensive coordinator, Joe Brady, system. So I expect that to continue to be production-wise where it's been. Um, but I hope he kind of he puts a, a squash to the don't pay the running back mantra. That's a wrap for the hot list and the entire Blitz Six Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next. Everybody stay safe out there, my friends. We'll see you back here tomorrow.